Good evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It sure is great to be back on the air, and here we are for Season 6. We are going to be discussing uh, founding rivals, Madison versus Monroe. Madison versus Monroe, or should I say James Madison versus James Monroe. The Bill of Rights and the Election that Saved a Nation by Chris DeRose. I read this book three years ago, and I figured that this would be a good time to talk about an election, not just any ordinary election, but an election that did have um, a serious impact on our country's well-being, but all for the right reasons. And of course, here we are in the midst of an election year. That's not to say, though, in 18th century times that elections were... um, nasty and uh, cutthroat like they are today. But of course, uh, in 18th century times, there wasn't um, televisions, there weren't nonstop um, political ads. The only kind of campaigning you would have been able to have done was um, basically on your front porch, what you might be calling front porch campaigning, or just campaigning in uh, local areas. But uh, it wasn't anything like we know of as a mass media frenzy today. So, what is, uh, what's so important, though, about this election? Well, I can tell you this much, that, that in the year 1789, a big milestone uh, happens. Uh, the lead-off question, I should say, for this uh, podcast session tonight is that what important event took place in New York City on April 30th of 1789? The answer is the following. George Washington was sworn in as President of the United States. Now remember folks, uh, you know, we're so used to in today's time um, presidents being sworn in during the month of uh, January. Of course, there was a time uh, for a good period of years up until 1933 when presidents were sworn in in the month of March. But since uh, the late 1930s, they have been sworn in um, since uh, January, but there was a time when things were very different. Now, let me ask you this. Um, when George Washington was sworn in as President of the United States, who administered his oath? And I should point this out. It wasn't anyone from the United States Supreme Court But then again, there wasn't a U.S. Supreme Court in existence just yet. So the person who administered the oath of office to George Washington was none other than a fellow um, individual of uh, prestigious importance. His name was Robert Livingston, who was the chief judicial officer of New York. Now, why is Robert Livingston important? Well, it's not so much that he is a chief judicial officer of New York, that is important, but what he's really most famous for is that he had uh, served on the Committee of Five back in uh, 1776 that helped draft the Declaration of Independence. That Committee of Five, besides Robert Livingston, included um, Benjamin Franklin of Pennsylvania, Roger Sherman of Connecticut, John Adams of Massachusetts, and none other than Thomas Jefferson of Virginia. So what uh, Chris DeRose is going to be um, discussing in this book is not just so much an election, 
but how two men who were very prominent, not just prominent Virginians, but prominent individuals, um, came to the forefront to serve their country in a variety of uh, different capacities, but how even in the aftermath of this election that these two men still were friends, that they still went about um, putting uh, duty and honor ahead of self-interest. In other words, they didn't, um, the, uh, what do you call it, the candidate who lost didn't um, sulk and pout forever and um, go behind the the victor's back and, you know, defame or, should I say, ruin that individual. In other words, the person who lost still made a good um, record for himself. In other words, he still left a good legacy. And that's the way it even should be in this day. But unfortunately, I think that, um, what do you call it, it's like the old saying, learn to disagree without being disagreeable. Um, that that notion has um, gone um, bye-bye, basically. But luckily, it wasn't that way in the 18th century. But that's not to say that there were moments when politicians back then probably um, did the opposite. In other words, they didn't learn how to disagree without being disagreeable. But what I found interesting when I read this book three years ago and rereading some of the um, most important stuff in this introduction, or should I say prologue, was that on April 30th of 1789, what I find interesting is that uh, what the first Congress of the United States was very concerned about, and what the issue uh, that worried members of the first Congress on this particular day, given that George Washington was being sworn in, it wasn't just so much that he was being sworn in. That wasn't the issue. It's what to call him. Of course, we all think of him as president. But on the day that he was being sworn in, there, were, there was a, a huge discussion on how to address him, title-wise. So there were those in Congress who wanted to give him these following titles. One was uh, calling him His Majesty. The second was His Excellency. And another one was King George. <laughs> they all seem like good titles, but here's the problem. His Excellency, His Majesty, to being called King, that applies to uh, European um, countries, most notably England. And if I'm not mistaken, didn't uh, George Washington who was um, the commander of the Continental Army, um, didn't he go above and beyond to keep um, kings out of our country? Didn't he go above and beyond to, um, to um, help, our, help um, keep the Continental Army intact? Because without him, there probably would not have been a Continental Army. So the bottom line is that uh, in the end, I'm not sure who was the one that coined the term the president, but the bottom line is, is that he, was not, he would not be referred to as His Majesty, His Excellency, or King George. But the irony to it all is that this particular matter involving proper title 
to the nation's leader would become just one of many key problems affecting the young republic, even from the start of its infancy. So here we are celebrating the fact that we have a new, that we have a, an official leader, head leader of the, of our young republic. But what, but despite all the cheers and celebrations that took place on this day and on April 30th of 1789, it's fair to say that there was one man who was in attendance who, I guess it's fair to say he, he, he might as well have sweat, um, he might as well have sweat a lot of blood and uh, tears because he made so many sacrifices just a few years earlier and to help ensure that um, that our country would find a way to um, evolve itself into a new form of government. Well, that person was James Madison. In other words, he was the one congressional figure who knew deep down inside just how painstaking the entire process had become to, in, to get to where the current situation stood. In other words... George Washington's inauguration just didn't happen overnight. People didn't go to the polls to vote. And we have to remember this too, folks. The only people who could vote back then were those who were um, well-to-do landowners. If you owned 100 acres or more, or in, in the case with Virginia, if you owned even up to, say, 500 acres or more, you, were allowed, you, you could vote. But if you only own, say, 10 acres of land, I hate to say this, but you probably were not allowed to vote. So there were um, restrictions on who could vote and who couldn't. Now, before 1787, we should all know what 1787 stands for. That is the year that our, that our Constitution, the United States Constitution, uh, became a legal binding document. And it is hard to believe that, it's, that the document itself is 233 years old. And I will probably mention this quite a bit in this um, series on founding rivals. But I am very thankful that this document has survived for 233 years when you consider how much our country has grown since the document itself was um, first legally um, binded and um, signed by those who signed the document. But, not, but I don't know of any other country out there in terms of a democratic republic or just a country in general that has had an existing document for 233 years. Too often we... Um, hear on the news about countries that have not had any stable governments for 10 or 20 years. And I often wonder, how do those people survive day in and day out when you don't even have a fundamental system of laws to abide by or, or just a government that can function? Now, I will admit, too, that, yes, our government isn't always perfect. And given, not to get too political, but given how... Um, our country is today in terms of how we're handling the, the coronavirus situation. While, yes, it may not be the most um, 
pretty of situations. I can still say that I'm thankful to be able to wake up each morning knowing that, um, that there is a government, it is functioning, it may not be functioning the way it should be, but at least I don't have to worry about a coup um, occurring tomorrow morning where everything will be eliminated to where a constitution that, that has been around for 233 years would just somehow disappear off the face of the planet and no longer exist. So my next question to you all is that before 1787, when did James Madison first begin writing about the weaknesses involving the existing government? Well, what was that existing government that uh, had been around for about seven to eight years? The Articles of Confederation. Now, it turns out in the year 1784, a conference was held at George Washington's estate, Mount Vernon. It was known as the Mount Vernon Conference. And James Madison himself had attended The Mount Vernon Conference, its primary purpose was to help settle disputes between Virginia and Maryland over the navigation of the Potomac River. Well, look at it this way, folks. Virginia and Maryland border each other, and the Potomac River flows into both of those states. And, of course, the Potomac River surrounds Washington, D.C. also. But before Washington, D.C. became our capital, Virginia and Maryland are are um, constantly fighting over um, who has rights to navigate the Potomac River and where the boundary lines are in terms of um, crossing into one state versus the other. So basically, this is an example here under the Articles of Confederation where all the states, all 13 states, had their own set of rules or laws, let alone. All 13 states had their own form of currency. Um, The uh, government above the 13 states really couldn't do a whole lot. So basically the states were running the whole show. The states were even wanting to conduct business with foreign nations. Well, because of all the problems that were going on between Virginia and Maryland over over navigation rights to the Potomac River, it pretty much led James Madison to become all the more convinced that disagreements between states would be an inevitable norm with long-term negative repercussions. And another good situation involving two of the 13 states had to do with New York and New Hampshire. Well, what would New York State and New Hampshire uh, be having a conflict over, given that those two states don't even border each other. Well, there is a state in the middle between New York and New Hampshire. It's Vermont. But, of course, Vermont was not admitted into the Union as of 1787. Vermont would be admitted into the Union uh, not long after Washington became president, but New York and New Hampshire had regular disputes over whom controlled what we now know as Vermont. So James Madison also knew that a strong national legislature was necessary to keep things in check. Okay, this could be a good example right here of checks and balances, keeping one branch of government from not being too powerful over the other. Now, it's interesting to note that the Mount Vernon Conference marked the beginnings 
for what would take place in September of 1786. And what took place in September of 1786? Another convention known as the Annapolis Convention in Annapolis, Maryland. That's the capital of Maryland. That's where five states met to discuss flaws under the current government being the Articles of Confederation. So we have to keep in mind, folks, that that the leaders in all 13 states, they just didn't wake up one morning and say, hey, the Articles of Confederation suck. We need to replace it as soon as possible. That's wishful thinking. Thank heavens there are leaders like James Madison, George Washington, and I should even point out that a fellow by the name of Alexander Hamilton from New York, he would team up with James Madison and go about convincing everyone that Congress needed to get the word out by asking states to send delegates to Philadelphia as soon as possible in the year 1787 and work out a more sophisticated system of government. Obviously, there are enough um, men out there who have enough smarts to realize that, hey, we've got to do something different. Because if we don't do something different here soon, who knows what might lie in, what could lie ahead down the road? I mean, we, we could be looking at rebellions, um, and rebellions could be just about with anything. But the bottom line is, is that if uh, we don't get a better system of government into play, then there's going to be more um, rebellions. There are going to be further conflicts that will uh, endanger our young republic's well-being. Of course, I don't even know if the Articles of Confederation would have classified us as a republic, but the bottom line is that people's lives are at stake here. Who are people going to turn to? They've got to be able to turn to something that represents a national government. Here's my next question for you all. We all need to keep in mind that, um, that when the delegates came to Philadelphia in, 17, in May of 1787, not all of them arrived at the same time. Now, I did just read a book recently called Signing Their Rights Away about the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the Constitution. It turns out that um, the authors who wrote that book were the same authors who wrote Signing Their Lives Away about the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence. And for those of you who um, were listening to that uh, podcast series I covered about Signing Their Lives Away, if you haven't read Signing Their Rights Away, I strongly recommend doing it. Uh, what I do know is that the number of men who signed the Constitution uh, was less than the number who signed the Declaration of Independence. But what I can tell you all is this, is that, those, is that um, the Constitutional Convention was from May of 1787 up until um, September of 1787. And uh, September 17th, last month, marked our 233rd anniversary of our uh, government's existence. But I will tell you all this. Um, it just didn't happen overnight that everyone came together and said, hey, let's sign this document, and now we have a government. We must keep in mind that um, after all of the uh, deliberations and debates 
that took place in Philadelphia? What did delegates have to do? Well, for one, they went back home, but two, each state had its own convention for um, ratification purposes. In other words, the delegates who were in Philadelphia, their objective after leaving Philadelphia was to go back home to persuade their constituents to support this document. So if you have 13 states, what do you all think is the magic number for enabling the Constitution to officially become the United States' legal binding governing document? The answer is nine. So the magic number, folks, is nine. You would need to have nine states to be on board to ratify the document. I can tell you all this. There's a reason why Delaware is called the first state. Does anybody want to know why Delaware is called the first state? It's because Delaware was the first to ratify the U.S. Constitution. Why else would you call Delaware the first state? Of course, we all should keep in mind that when the, that when, um, that the English were the first to settle in Jamestown, or not in Virginia, what we now know as Virginia, being the first permanent English settlement in uh, North America, but, but we must forward years later, at least a good um, 180-some years later, and now we have Delaware being the first state. That is the first state to ratify the Constitution. So I will tell you all this, that Delaware, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey were the first three states to ratify the Constitution. And they all did so in, in December of 1787. And after those three states ratified, then the dominoes uh, continued to uh, move in the right track. But, it, it, but not everything happened as smooth as we would like for it to. So I guess my next question to you all is the following. Which state was the ninth state to ratify the Constitution in order for it to be our nation's legal binding document? That answer is the following. New Hampshire, or what we know as the Granite State, New Hampshire uh, ratified the document on June 21st, 1788. And I can tell you this, uh, after having read the book, uh, Signing Their Rights Away, if there's one man whom we have to thank from New Hampshire who really went above and beyond to, to, um, to see to it that uh, his state um, ratified the document, it was John Langdon. New Hampshire only had two signers to the Constitution, but John Langdon uh, went above and beyond. As a matter of fact, he even wrote a letter to George Washington saying that he needed a little bit more time to be able to persuade his uh, constituents just how vital this document would be. He bas it was basically his way of telling his constituents, hey, look, not everything in this document may be 100% perfect, but it's the best thing we can it's the best thing that we were able to come up with in Philadelphia. And yes, it will change over time, but if you don't support this document, then we don't even then our country won't have 
any kind of document to go by that's legally binded. So thank you, New Hampshire, for um, ratifying this document. Not just for ratifying it, but by being that ninth state to ratify. Now, I should um, ask you all this question. Okay, if Delaware, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey were the first three to sign, or not to sign, but to ratify, and New Hampshire was the ninth, what uh, what other what were the other five states who ratified? Well, after New Jersey being the third, Georgia was the fourth, and I find this interesting that Georgia was the first Southern colony to ratify the document. Massachusetts was fifth, Connecticut was sixth, Maryland was seventh, South Carolina eighth, and then New Hampshire the the ninth. What I find interesting, too, about South Carolina and New Hampshire, and this went back, this goes back to the Declaration of Independence time, uh, being 11 years earlier in 1776. I, and I know I mentioned this in my um, series on signing their uh, lives away, that uh, New Hampshire and South Carolina were the first two uh, colonies, as, that, as they were referred to then, who... Um, ousted their royal governors, and actually called on for independence before the other colonies had officially declared separation from England. So in other words, South Carolina and New Hampshire had already um, voted in um, non-royal governors and had written their own state, their own state constitutions. And what do you know? South Carolina and New Hampshire are, are those last two states who signed, who ratified the document in order for it to be a legal binding document. So I find it very interesting. The northernmost state and the second to southernmost state go hand in hand together in ensuring that our, our uh, nation's governing um, document not only became legally binded, but, hey, it's still in existence today. But another bonus question I will ask you all is this. After New Hampshire became that ninth state to ratify, did the, did the other remaining four states join along per their delegations in approving the document? This is a two-part question, or two-part answer, rather, I should say. Yes and no. It turns out that two of the four states ratified the Constitution, but another two held out. Which two states did ratify? New York and Virginia. Virginia is where I'm from, and Virginia has lots of rich history. But then again, a lot of the other states in this great nation have rich history as well. But Virginia ratified uh, the Constitution four days after New Hampshire had done so on June 25th of 1788. But I will tell you all this, that process was a very, very uh, treacherous one for Virginia because it only passed by a thin margin of 89 to 79. And thank heavens that James Madison was at the forefront of it all because if he wasn't, the 
uh, the opponents or the, uh, the leading opposition force, if they had had it their way, they would have shot it down. And most of you all probably don't know this, but it, when we think of Patrick Henry, we always think of that famous speech he gave at St. John's Episcopal Church. I don't know what course others shall take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death which was a very ardent patriotic speech back in 1775. But in the years since then, Patrick, Henry, um, Patrick Henry's views changed greatly. He became, in my opinion, more of a libertarian. He did not support the Constitution. He went as far as um, vehemently opposing the wording of it. As we all know, the Constitution says, we the people of the United States, that official title, well, Patrick Henry wanted we the states. He basically said, who gave the people the power to form a more perfect union along with providing the general welfare to providing a common defense? Patrick Henry became so disillusional about it all that he just didn't want to have anything to do with it. Well, I guess he was entitled to his opinion, but hey, I think if Patrick Henry were alive today, I guess he would be happy to know that there still is a constitution that's been around since 1787. I would just hope that even though he would know that, okay, if it's not perfect, it's better than not having any um, legal binding document, because without a legal binding document... How can anything um, exist in the terms of um, having, um, what do you call it, an effective government? And then you got New York, who ratified on July 26th of 1788. And I think we, it's fair to say that we have Alexander Hamilton to thank, because many in his state were very much against it as well. So it's very easy to assume, folks, that everybody was on board with this document, but in reality, not everybody was. And it turns out that actually 55 men were in Philadelphia, but only 39 signed it. Three men could have signed it, but just literally abstained. So we have to be reminded that um, just because, say, 55 men are there, it doesn't mean that all 55 sign. But given that 39 men signed, that tells you something right there, that at least they were willing to make the sacrifices to ensure that we would be able to have a not just a legal binding document, but a government for the people and by the people that would be able to um, be doable, not just in their present day of time, but for the future. I should point out that uh, two states being North Carolina and Rhode Island, held out. The irony to it all is that North Carolina did send delegates to Philadelphia, but Rhode Island did the opposite. They sent no one. And I'm sure many of you are wondering, what was wrong with Rhode Island? And why was North Carolina so reluctant on um, holding out? And I will uh, get to that part here in a moment. Now, as for James Madison, what was his amb most... Um, important ambition, what was he striving to achieve? Well, for James Madison, he was a stat, wanted to establish a government that could work for an entire union of states. 
And on April 30th of 1789, the day which George Washington became president, this would have best exemplified Madison's grand envisions. So, for example, the executive post, being the uh, president, commander-in-chief for George Washington, and then you have a legislative body or a legislative branch that um, debates and then works together to pass bills in both chambers, the House and the Senate, and then those bills are brought before the president to sign into law. Now, yes, it's, it's, it's wonderful that we have a leader, or what we now think of as the, free, the leader of the free world, but I don't know if in 1789 it would have been safe to have considered us to have had a leader known as the leader of the free world. But the bottom line is we did have a leader, which is a good start. And despite George Washington becoming the first U.S. president, did our young republic face enormous challenges? Absolutely. Well, what, what were some of those enormous challenges? The issues ranged from having no credit, no revenue system, to a national debt which had skyrocketed out of control. And if you think those matters are bad, what's worse is that those matters in general had major implications even when it came to performing the most basic of responsibilities. So many of you all are wondering, well, why is our country in debt? Well, I could tell you all this much. We did fight a war against England. It wasn't so much we fought a war, but the French lent us money. Remember, folks, France joined the Revolutionary War because they wanted to get back at England because of what had happened in the aftermath of the French and Indian War. You know, the British won that war. What happened? They took all of the land that the French had west of the um, Mississippi River, and especially around what we now know as um, present-day uh, Detroit, Michigan, um, anywhere um, along the Great Lakes area that the French had controlled, and that also include what includes what we now know as the St. Lawrence River uh, in upstate New York. Uh, so basically the French, you know, they wanted to get back at England for how they were um, snubbed out of their territories. So the bottom line is, yes, it's great that the French were on our side in the American Revolutionary War, but guess what happens? Okay, the French lend us money, we got to repay him back. And we have to remember this too, folks. There's no such thing as a world bank. There's no international monetary fund system. So it's very fair to say that other nations have probably been helping us just to get by. We don't have a Federal Reserve system. We don't even have an IRS system. I mean, that's not going to come for a long time. The bottom line is, we don't really have a whole lot to go by. So when George Washington becomes president, only 11 out of the 13 states have ratified the U.S. Constitution. And as I said earlier, North Carolina and Rhode Island are holding out. Why are these two states holding out? Because there is a critical component that is lacking. That's an easy answer right there, a Bill of Rights. And because a Bill of Rights is lacking, just because 11 of the 13 states have ratified the Constitution, it doesn't mean that 
that some of those 11 states are in perfect harmony 100%. It turns out that Virginia and New York had gone as far as proposing for a new constitutional convention to take place and had two-thirds of the states agreed to that plan. I think it's fair to say that the history of our, na of our nation's young republic would have been altered forever. Who's to say that had a new constitutional convention taken place that, um, that the constitution we would have would, be, would have been any better than the one that was just recently uh, put into a legal binding document uh, just a year earlier in 1788? So it's, it's one thing to have a, a new constitution, but if you're going to do it, you've got to do it the right way. And I think it's fair to say that for the signers in 1787, when they signed that constitution, they knew that they had to get it right. Because if they didn't get it right then, I think it's fair to say that all hell would have just broken loose. Who knows how many more years it might have taken just to have gotten it right. And I'm very thankful that there has not been another constitutional convention um, to this date because if there was one, um, I don't see how people would come together in large part because the nation today, our nation today is very polarized. It might be fair to say that in the 18th, cent in the 18th century in 1787 there could have been some polarization, but I... But I will have to beg to differ that whatever polarization existed in 1787 paled in comparison to what exists today. What is going on today is probably a hundred times worse than what was going on in 1787. I do believe it's fair to say that many of those signers, if not many of them, all of them, they all knew how to do something that is lacking even in today's government, compromising. Compromising is not an easy thing to do, but you know what? If you want to make something work, you're going to have to give up something else in order for that other key uh, for that other component to work, not just to work for you, but for the good of the but for the good of the people or the public. So, when George Washington is sworn in, you know, he does deliver a speech to Congress. But does he propose any type of legislative agenda? He Actually, he doesn't. And maybe that's okay. But what I found interesting and really am amazed at, James Madison is there. But it turns out that James Madison had written George Washington's speech to Congress that day. So it's fair to say that James Madison might have been our nation's first presidential speechwriter. He's really the guy who has gone behind the scenes to ensure that, hey, we haven't we that our president is being has been sworn in, but we've we've got to know, hey, how is he going to address not just the Congress but address the people who are listening? So Madison has written Washington's speech to Congress. And it did entail an important task, amending the U.S. Constitution with a Bill of Rights. Okay? This is great because Madison just can't assume that Washington's going to say out of nowhere, oh, um, to all of you um, leaders out there or uh, members of Congress, um, 
I'm going to ask that our Constitution be amended with the Bill of Rights. Well, the next bonus question is this. Why would it become imperative to re-amend the Constitution with the Bill of Rights? Well, for one, North Carolina and Rhode Island were already holding out. But if a Bill of Rights were to be implemented, it could help prevent a two-thirds majority vote on doing the opposite. That will, and that is very simple, folks. By preventing a two-thirds majority vote on the opposite, that would be preventing a new government um, convention on uh, that is creating a new constitution. But it would also help curtail a growing movement that was led by anti-federalists whom were demanding that personal liberty reforms become enacted. And here we go, folks. Um, our first two political parties of the day are your Federalists and your Anti-Federalists, or they would later become known as the Democratic Republicans or Jeffersonian Republic Republicans. Uh, the Federalists are obviously being led by men like George Washington, John Adams, Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and for a while, James Madison. The Federalists believe in a strong central government. And if you look at someone like Alexander Hamilton, he believed that the wealthy and the well-educated were the most capable of running the government. Well, what, what do you, when I think of wealthy and well-educated, when I think of the wealthy part of it, I think of, you know, having lots of money, perhaps being a landowner. But for Alexander Hamilton, being wealthy meant having a lot of money in the mercantile business. That is, um, you know, working um, hands on, hand on hands with uh, those who are um, very dependent upon shipping goods in and out, in other words, shipping goods, um, exporting them out, and then relying on imported goods coming in. But in the sense of being well-educated, Alexander Hamilton believed that, hey, if you are knowledgeable on a variety of uh, subjects, and, and if your knowledge is that strong, then you should, um, then you should be allowed to represent uh, a group of constituents on your behalf. But if you don't have a whole lot to offer, then why would you? Why should we be electing you to Congress? So in Hamilton's eyes, it's all about what you as an individual are knowledgeable in, but what you can sell and offer to those whom you'll represent. As for the anti-federalists, well, they're led by men like uh, Thomas Jefferson and a fellow named James Monroe. But Jefferson really is the true leader of the Anti-Federalist Party. He believes that uh, government should not be too um, powerful. It should be a, um, what do you call it, a more of a decentralized form of government. Uh, he does believe that uh, the federal government does have powers, but they should be limited. And this makes a lot of sense when you consider that Thomas Jefferson truly is the architect of American freedom. Jefferson's faith in terms of who should be running the government are those uh, who are uh, farmers. In other words, those who own lots of land, but, um, don't, but in a sense don't necessarily have to be well-educated. They just have to have a lot of land. And by having a lot of land... 
that's how they can uh, flex their way in and out of, um, of making deals. So, um, which political party controlled the majority in both houses of Congress? Well, that's an easy answer, the Federalists. And yes, James Madison himself was one. But were a majority of the Federalists on board with amending the Constitution? The answer is no. For many of these men, they saw the document as one that could operate within the grounds of specific delegated, or what we refer to as assigned powers, restricted to Congress. So many of you, many of you all are wondering, what are these uh, delegated uh, powers that are restricted to Congress? Well, you can find that in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. These delegated powers range from uh, the power to tax, establishing a military, to declaring war, creating a court system, regulating commerce and immigration. The Federalists were more concerned about, you know, the, about issues like establishing a revenue system, addressing the national debt, building a federal judiciary system, to creating executive departments. It should be pointed out that um, about seven months after George Washington became president, actually I take it back five months after he became president, that the United States Supreme Court was established. So that's an example right there of the Federalists probably having achieved one of their objectives in establishing a federal judiciary system. But in the, but in the eyes of many Federalists, they have pretty much said, hey, can the Bill of Rights wait for another session? Why, why do we need to do this now? Why, why are people so worried about their rights being trampled on? Well, I can tell you all a reason why so many people are worried about individual rights. Here's an example right here. I'll, and I'll um, address it as best as I can, but this is a, a good fundamental example right here. Did many in the Federalist camp believe that it wasn't essential to guarantee freedom of religion? It turns out, yes. Because in their eyes, they believed that the Constitution didn't give the government any power to regulate religion, period. This is a dangerous example here, folks. Because for, for so many people, and this would include um, those who might even be Federalists, for all we know, but it would probably have applied to the opposition being the anti-Federalists, that a handful of men had been subjected to religious persecution. Not, or not just being persecuted in terms of killing, but rather, I should say, religious discrimination based off of their faith. Just because you're a Protestant, it didn't mean that you had the same rights as a Protestant living in Virginia, especially if John Smith adhered to the Anglican Church or the Church of England. In Virginia, up until 1778, if you were a dissenter, guess where your taxes went? To the Anglican Church or the Church of England. The Church of England was the utmost official church recognized in the state of Virginia. 
If you were a Methodist, a Baptist, a Quaker, you, you could be jailed. If you challenged the church, um, it could mean um, a, a, a punishment in public, but it could mean death. And there have been stories told at Colonial Williamsburg when my wife and I have gone where people were nailed, um, had nails uh, drilled into their ears all in the name of uh, challenging um, religious authority in England. So if you want to go somewhere else for religious diversity, you probably need to go to, up to New England, like Massachusetts and New Hampshire. Now, if you want to be a Catholic, then you need to go to Maryland, because Maryland is, the, um, is a major, um, what do you call it, um, religious haven for uh, Catholics. But then again, Maryland was founded by uh, Catholic leaders, most notably um, Cecil Calvert and the famous uh, Carroll family, uh, led by uh, Charles Carroll. So, to sum this up here on this part, we would be looking at an uneven balance beam scale. How so? People could come forward and state what government would not be allowed to do. In other words, people could come forward and say, hey, the government cannot um, establish any laws linking church and state. In other words, there can't be one, uh, denom one religious denomination in uh, unison with the government telling people what, what they can and cannot worship in terms of religion. And that's, a great, and that, and that's all good. But, all the, but on the other hand, what if the government received powers that were never intended to be exercised? And there you go, folks, church and state. Okay, and look at it in Virginia, folks. The Church of England was pretty much like its own governmental system. The Church of England, or the Anglican Church in Virginia, pretty much controlled daily governmental life. So it wasn't so much, hey, you pay your taxes to the church, you attend the Anglican Church. If you don't, and we find out that you're questioning the Anglican Church, well, then you violated church and state. So basically, you don't want to have a government be receiving powers that it was never intended to be exercised. I hope that I was able to elaborate as, on that as best as, I, as best as possible, but it's just a good example of what government, of what people could say that government would not be allowed to do, but at the same time have government be given powers that it was, not, that it was never intended to use on people. So this is a good example right here of where checks and balances have to come into play. Now, whom was uh, James Madison's opponent in the race for, Virgi for, the, for Virginia's 5th Congressional District? Well, his name's James Monroe. I mean, after all, I mentioned the guy earlier. I mean, I'm not sure who else, um, why, I mean, who else would be, who else is famous in Virginia at this time with the last name of Monroe? Now, I will admit that my last name is Monroe, and I've had many people ask me in my lifetime, am I related to James Monroe? And uh, as much as I would like to tell them that I am a direct descendant, 
I've come to realize that I am more than likely a very, very distant descendant of him. I do know that James Monroe and his wife had a son, but sadly the, the, the young boy died in infancy. They had two daughters that made it to adulthood. So as my father said to me once, we are more than likely a very, very distant uh, relative slash descendant of James Monroe. But Madison and Monroe had lots in common, it should be pointed out. Well, what did they have in common? Well, they both served in the Virginia House of Delegates. They also served on the Council of State. That is the governing body that advises the governor on um, critical decisions on what to support and what not to. They both attended the Virginia Ratification Convention. James Madison at this time in 1789, is 37 years of age. He is truly the chief author to the U.S. Constitution. He is a very brilliant-minded political thinker. James Monroe, at this time, is about 30 or 31 years of age. He is a well-known attorney, and he has a very, very um, excellent military record. This election between James Madison and James Monroe would be one that featured uh, two future presidents running against each other for the first and only time in U.S. history. I find that hard to believe, but then again, there's nothing wrong with having a first in this matter. And how ironic that, yes, they were, they were both from Virginia, and Virginia obviously is referred to as the motherhood of presidents, given that Virginia has produced eight of them. Now, this campaign or election between these two men would forever alter the path of the young republic. James Monroe was an anti-federalist. He, he wanted amendments that would ensure personal liberties, but he had also advocated the possibility or the option of a new constitution. See, I'm afraid this is where James Monroe could be at a disadvantage. But I do know this, without a Bill of Rights, the Union itself would have collapsed. Think about it, folks. If we don't have freedom of religion, free speech, the right to um, assemble, petition, a free press, uh, if we don't have the right to a fair trial, if we don't have the right to be free from cruel and unusual punishment, if we don't have the right to be, um, if, if we don't have the right to be protected from double jeopardy, that is being tried, being protected from being tried twice by the same crime for the same crime, if we don't have any of this stuff, then how, then how can any of our liberties in general be safeguarded? In other words. How can we be protected from forces above who, who don't have their own system of checks and balances to um, operate by? Yes, it's one thing to have the legislative and executive branches not overpower each other, but when it comes to representing the ordinary everyday people, they have to have rights as well. So... I do believe it's very fair to say, about, to, sum, to sum it all up for this podcast, James Madison came to Congress with the right reputation and political skills. 
He's been preparing for some time to make a name for himself. But all of this just didn't happen overnight. He did go to college. And as a matter of fact, I will talk more about that in the next podcast. Uh, We will talk more about James Madison and James Monroe's upbringings and in the times that they grew up in uh, Virginia, what was going on, not just in the world, but uh, how the events that were taking place in the world impacted Virginia as a colony. Because we have to remember when James Madison and James Monroe were born, Virginia was a colony, just like the other 12 colonies were. And last but not least, James Madison was probably the, the person who... He was the right person at the right time. In other words, his leadership was critical to um, getting a Bill of Rights passed because without James Madison, I'm not sure who would have been able to have uh, brought Federalists and Anti-Federalists together in ensuring that we have the personal liberties that still exist to this day. And as someone once said, and I had read... I had read an old National Geographic magazine some years back, and it had a, a, an article on James Madison. So the, the, the writer said this, uh, to understand James Madison is to understand how the Constitution came into being. So in other words, J- James Madison's political thought or not just his thought, his political thoughts, his, his writings, his, his views, his observations and studies, all of that translates into how the Constitution came into being. Well, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, folks, and, um, and I know for a fact that we are going to be in for a very, very um, excellent uh, session not just tonight, but an excellent session with founding rivals, Madison versus Monroe, the Bill of Rights, and the election that saved the nation. Uh, thank you for listening in, and I look forward to being back on the air again here soon. Take care.